Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day. I'm Derek White, author of The Challenge of Blackness and the forthcoming Blood, Sweat, and Tears, uh, Jake Gate, the Florida A&M and the History of Black College Football. Lou, welcome back, man. Episode 7, we are trying to get it in ahead of the NFL draft. But before we talk about the draft, which is the subject of today's show, let's talk about a little bit about the playoffs. Are you watching? Are you staying up late past your bedtime watching these games? Uh, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. School's almost over. We, I, I, it's finals week. I got a gang of stuff to to record, but once I, I grade, then I, I think I'll be able to stay up. But you know, I'm a West Coast guy, and um, I've been out here for ten years on East Coast time. The hardest thing is playoff time because the good games start at ten thirty. Um, so, but but it looks like the good thing about this year is that the East Coast, like those second round games and the and the and the finals. Are going to be really strong, so you know I could start watching at eight and and perhaps go to bed a, a lot earlier. Uh, what about yourself? Ah, oh, man, the West Coast games are a struggle, man. I'm an East Coast guy through and through, but spend a lot of time on the West Coast. Um, I miss being out there, so the games are done at like a reasonable hour, which means that I did not stay up and watch Damian Lillard shot, but it was all on my uh, Twitter timeline as well as uh, ESPN every show uh, and. It's fantastic. It's probably one of the best shots I've ever seen to end the game. Because um, who takes a, thir- a step back 40 footer uh, to win it? But that was spectacular. Uh, series ending, um, creating all kinds of offseason drama for Oklahoma City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. And and to add to it, it's a, it's a 40 footer in Paul George's grill, right? And George is a good 6'8 with long arms, right? So that's not a, it's not an easy shot. But to be clear, I'm going to be the stay off my lawn guy. Uh, he traveled. Uh, <laughs> I'm the only one who's gone with that. But like, it, and it, it was a bad shot, right? You miss it. It's like, why do you need a, a, a walk off three from 40 foot away? But that's that's just how, how young people are. And and also shout out to Dane Leonard for, for being one of the great uh, black players from the Bay, right? A history of Bill Russell, Gary Payton, Jason Kidd. Yes, Jason Kidd is black. I always – have to go over that with my class whenever you tell them that Jason Kidd's black. Right? <laughs> uh, who else? Isaiah Ryder. Um, so J.R. Ryder uh, was who got the, one of the Davis boys, Anthony Davis. Um, so there's some some great Bay Area legends, um, and, and Dame Leonard is like the latest of them. Nah, well, he earned that. He is he's moving up not just Bay Area legends. He's he's etched his name forever in playoff lore with that shot last night. Um and then I think in a couple of weeks, man, we got some stuff to talk about baseball. We're not ready yet. I feel like baseball starts uh every year in April and I'm not interested until May. Uh and so we got at least a couple of weeks before we start getting into this baseball. But that's been some hot, interesting stuff happening uh in baseball in terms of race. And so I can't wait for us to get to that episode. But today's show is about the NFL draft, which is taking place as of this recording tomorrow. Um and we've got a lot of stuff, man. We're you know, we've got uh Kyler Murray projected to go number one. Um, which opens up a whole lot of, of, of discussion about, you know, uh, who are the first black players to be drafted number one overall. Obviously, we got the combine stuff, which has all kinds of racial connotations. 
Uh, we got Nick Bosa talking with his MAGA tweets. And then I think the big cup, the big piece for today is we're going to talk a little bit about black quarterbacks. And so let's, let's just jump right in and talk about like, you know, a little bit about this first, uh, this first overall pick. And I want to just open it with my favorite player uh, who I never got a chance to see, but as a historian, I love is Buck Buchanan drafted first overall in 1963 by the Kansas city chiefs, which really changes the whole landscape of the NFL uh, in terms of African-American players, man. Um, But let's talk a little bit about the sixties in the, in the AFL and, and Buck Buchanan. Yeah, so you mentioned Bucks. So Bucks in 63, uh, the first black player drafted number 162 is Ernie Davis. But we bring up Buck because Bucks uh, is an HBCU guy, right? Um, and and shout out to Grambling, right? If you ever got a chance to go to that little, what's, where's Grambling? Is it in Ruston? Uh, it's, uh, it's in Grambling. <laughs> Grambling, right? Just right next to Ruston. Like it is, yeah. it is Grambling, it's Grambling. But they have a, a Eddie Robson Hall of Fame there. And if you go there, like, to go to a Hall of Fame, you're just like, oh my gosh, this is amazing because you see nothing but like pro players and 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 like Hall of Famers like Buck Buchanan and and guys like Charlie Joyner and and greats like Ernie Ladd, right? Who who played their days in Grambling and and a guy like Tank Younger, right? Who we were talking about earlier before we got on, who who starred at Grambling as a as a running back slash fullback and then makes it to the to the NFL and is really I think is it fair to say that Tank is the first like black breakout star from uh, HBCUs um, in major professional football? Yeah, and then kind of opens up those floodgates. Yeah, no, absolutely. Tank uh, Tank Younger is the is the is the person who has success. He signed as a free agent, um, and you know he had scored a, a a ridiculous number of touchdowns at at Grambling. Uh, and he was able to translate that success at the next level, which was huge because I think the belief, and this was, you know, for black colleges in particular, because of the racial connotations, but for all small colleges, right? There was this belief that if you played at a small college, you couldn't, you weren't, um, face enough competition to play at the, at the, uh, professional level. And so Tank Younger's success opens the door. Uh, and then I think it, it was, we talked about before, what we also get is this competition after World War II, right? That we see all these new uh, professional football leagues, the AF, the AAFC. Yes. Uh, AAFL. Football League, right. Yes. And then, which will have a team such as who's still in there, we'll have the Cleveland Browns, probably most famously, will, will, they have the Los Angeles Dons. Yeah, the Los Angeles Dons. And the Dons, right. They had the Yankees who had Buddy, Buddy Young, one of the star players from Illinois and, and, Breaks the color barrier in, in Dallas uh, when the Yankees moved to to Dallas, and the Dons are signed like two HBCU players like right off the bat, and we say signed because they didn't draft them, right? Um, yeah, no, that, that's they're not page. drafted HBCU players at that time. Uh, but you know, as you as you started out saying when we started to talk about Buck in in the in the sixties is, and I think that's when you'll start to see the huge opening of HBCU players coming to the professional ranks in the sixties because. As you mentioned, same thing as post World War II with competition. In the sixties, you have more competition uh, in professional football. You have, you know, the growing AFL and you have the NFL. And one of the things the AFL does is is build uh, 
it uh, builds itself up by tapping into black talent. And they do a lot better job of that than the NFL. And when I say black talent, I want to go back and mean HBCU talent, right? And so that's where you have those guys like a Ernie Ladd and a Charlie Joyner and a Buck Buchanan uh, come again to the league where, where the NFL still seems like they're really more comfortable with guys who go to uh, PWIs. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I think there's this thing, and this is this is a time for me to shout out my my book on uh, black college football that's coming out uh, later on this summer. Is one of the things that you really see is that 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 when teams, both in the NFL initially, they there was just this, you know, happenstance, almost you know, luck. Right. That the the draft was like four days long. It was thirty rounds. Um, the Giants, for instance, drafted uh, in the 1950s. Uh, they drafted. Uh, Roosevelt Brown, who went on to be uh, all American, uh, I, I mean, uh, all conference, all pro, and a Hall of Famer for the New York Giants, they drafted him out of Morgan State in the twenty seventh round, only because <laughs> only because someone just happened to be looking at the Pittsburgh Courier and was like, "All right, this guy, we need an offensive lineman, uh, and this guy's all uh, he's an all American." Uh, according to the Pittsburgh Courier. So they did, they never saw him. They never witnessed him play. They just randomly took a name off the list, off the out of the newspaper. Uh, but by the 1960s, when you get the AFL, and I think this is what you're alluding to, is that the competition means that we have new scouts. And so you hire uh, Lloyd Wells out of, out of Texas for the Houston Informer, who was a reporter. He's in charge for the Chiefs of helping them um, 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 scout HBCU players, and he's sending letters to all these coaches. Um, there are letters uh, between the Los Angeles Rams and and Jake Gaither, for instance, who often told coaches about black college players. And so we see the beginning of this kind of robust scouting network that absolutely benefits um, African-American players at historically black colleges. So it's that by 1963, Buck Buchanan, who is taken number one overall, uh, which is also crazy because in the NFL draft, he's drafted like in the fifth or sixth round. So it gives you a sense of like how these two leagues, be- and they, at least at one point, uh, had differing values uh, on these players. Right. And and real quick, when you bring that up, just the listeners let our listeners know there were two separate drafts, right? Which was in many ways a good thing for these players because now you can put somebody against each other. Um, mm-hmm. And so these, one of the reasons why these leagues merge is because the salaries are getting out of control, especially the drafts. So the drafts will actually merge before the leagues merge. Um, you know, that's just how capitalism, I guess the owners see things, right? Like if you're a Buck Buchanan or you're a, even someone like a, a Joe Namath, right? You could play teams off of each other. Um, when you don't have that anymore, those salaries will start to 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 dip down. Um, the other thing, while we're shouting out books, like listeners, there's a historian Char- Charles K. Ross. If you want to know anything about football and integration, uh, he's the guy to go to uh, for the AFL. He's got a book, Mavericks, Money, and Men. Uh, the AFL, Black Players, and the Evolution of Modern Football. And he also has the key text on the integration of professional football in the in the 1940s. And another thing, what I like that you brought up is this the shout-out to the Black press, right? The Pittsburgh Courier, the Houston Informer. Um, so anybody, if you're interested in the research, right? If you want to do HBU, HBCU football, got to go to the black press um and especially to the the southern uh papers so you know there's tons of stuff on prayer for you in in uh the houston former there's tons of stuff on southern grambling in louisiana weekly and i'm sure when you were writing uh your great book uh, on jake gaither you were just scouring over the black press 
Oh, absolutely, man. I think it's, you know, the for in the Southeast, the Atlanta Daily World, which is which is amazing because uh as you know, as someone who uses black press, it's like one of the few black dailies. And so it gives a sense that you get in football season, you get constant stories about all over the country, uh, through there. Obviously, uh the Baltimore Afro American uh, the Norfolk Journal and Guide; those are those are key kind of newspapers to help you understand football out of the Southeast. And so each each region was was amazing. Uh, but I think it's also important to think a little bit about how this from these early days uh, in which we were relying on scouts uh, who had this inside information about black colleges to a much more, I think, normalized that we see because, as you pointed out, the the kind of combining of the drafts and the need for uh, teams to kind of uh, collaborate as opposed to work against one another to get information is that we see this creation of the NFL combine uh, in the 1970s. And the combine starts off as just kind of random thing that has grown into a televised event. Um, but it has this eerie, I think the thing that's interesting now is that it has this eerie uh, callback and echo to, to, to what we as African-American historians think of as a slave market where, where you have these white owners and these coaches primarily who are white, almost all exclusively white prodding and poking and looking at these often uh, overwhelmingly black bodies in the sense that they're going to be, you know, um, commodities uh, in this athletic capitalism. Right. And so there's a sense that in the very moment of the draft that we're celebrating that's happening tomorrow, what what's preempting it is this moment that has this kind of, I think, uncomfortable echo to the slave market. Right, right. So we're not saying it's slavery or the slave market, but I think that there's something about the slave market that normalizes, right, the prodding of these bodies, uh, where you're literally just speculating on them, right, and you're 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 giving them a value based solely on the body. Now we could say stuff about the wonder look test, and, and certainly we'll get into that when we talk Kyler Moore. But that's where people it just seems uncomfortable. Some people use the term like meat market, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but I think when you do use the term like slave market, you really force people to to really think about how um, black bodies have been viewed, right? Um, throughout history in America as just simply bodies to 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 do labor and and the bigger the better right and i think that's the sense you get out of the nfl combine but then again it's like this mega you know deal where it's on tv and people talk about it um and it gets to the point where you think you forget about that kind of that that nature of it right where it is it just doesn't seem right and and i you know and i'm sure that the the people who go through it right it just doesn't seem right to them but for them it's 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 like part of the job right and 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 so i think if you're a football player you've gone through that via going through combines and or seven on sevens when you're in high school and then doing camps when you're trying to make it to college right get noticed like there's something about i think they you know they normalize this idea that you're prodding over these black bodies um but it just still doesn't doesn't it never really feels right um and you just wish that there was a different way where you can evaluate football talent yeah, I think there's, I think that's part of it, right? That I think it's, it is this, this sense that there is for, a, there's a certain kind of level of uncomfortableness, um, 
that I think we as viewers, as educated viewers who are who come through African American history and sports history see it, that I think that the league itself and the players themselves don't see because they see this as the necessary like, you know, for the league, it's like uh, how do we get accurate information, right? It's just a data pool like you know a guy says he's six foot two when he's really like six foot one um he says he weighs 240 but he really weighs 220 right they're trying to figure out all those kinds of things which as you point out means a big deal for them who's about to spend millions of dollars um and then as you said the players themselves are very much um uh accustomed to this as part of their normalized um their normalized kind of a process of seven on seven at the high school level, at the collegiate level. And, and then they're obviously their desire to get to professional football. Um, so yeah, I think there's some of that, but the draft is a, a the other part of this though. And I want to say this too, because I think the draft um, itself, right. It's, I, you know, there are so many kind of uh, issues surrounding football in terms of CTE, in terms of labor, in terms of race and, and management. We've touched on, on several episodes, episodes of this podcast, but I do think that there's something to be said that I that I find joyful is that when these young men's in that one moment uh, realize their dream, right? They're surrounded, especially in the first round, they're surrounded by their family and their friends, and they know how hard that they worked, and that work kind of pay, pays off. And I think that that's a that's a that's a to me as a as a sports fan, but also as 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 a father, I think that's an important piece uh, for me to acknowledge as well. In part because we as academics don't get you know we don't get no 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 handshake no dap no hats <laughs> no television for yeah. like right for writing books or for for finishing dissertations or any of that good stuff so so it's always good to be celebratory for someone else yeah yeah no 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 doubt we get nothing uh absolutely nothing <laughs> uh, um so oh you know what we get I, hey when's the next book coming out like damn like i just finished like this right book. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, what are you working on next? That's all we get. Uh, so, yeah, shout out to them. And it's, it is a good moment. It feels weird because, you know, it's Roger Goodell doing all this. And there's so much, like you said, there's there's a lot of complicated issues uh, with the draft. And speaking about complicated issues with the draft, uh, Bosa. Uh, <laughs> it's a complicated issue with the draft. Um, so if you guys don't know, he's he's the top. I would say he's one of the top picks that's coming out. And and you could tell just over the last two years, if if you ever watched uh, Ohio State play, just you know, just like his his brother play, right? He just pops. Um, mm-hmm. But but what's different is that he's part of this this generation, uh, this MAGA generation. Um, and it always just feels weird because there's something in, and there's something. In, look, look, how do I put this? I'm not saying you can't be MAGA. I'm just saying that pe- young people who are MAGA are really, they're annoying about it, right? Like they just, they do it to, to like troll you and annoy you. Um, and they do it out of a position of, of privilege and power because none of that stuff bothers them. That racism, that xenophobia, um, all that stuff that, that, um, 45 does or all that stuff that MAGA stands for, they're never going to be touched that by that. And they know that they could tweak you a little bit by just being that MAGA guy. So when you look at some of his tweets or some of his likes, they don't stand out as like, they're not overtly racist, but they're problematic. And, and I look at them as like, man, um, and, and shout out to students who are listening. Uh, by the way, I don't force my students to listen, but I look at some of his <laughs> tweets or his Instagram stuff as just like, you know, at the end of the year when you get the student evals and you teach like a, 
like a non-black history class, like a, a U.S. a general U.S. history class, you'll always get that student who who ends up saying like they talk too much about slavery, they talk too much about black history, right? And it's just something they know it's just going to needle you, it's just going to bother you. Yeah, no, I that, absolutely right. Like you, you know, it's a sense of what like they feel like they're trolling. But I would I, I want to push back a little bit on this, right? Like where there's no like there's a sense that it comes from a sense of privilege, right? Because I think it does for for Nick Bosa. He's always been big man on campus, right? Um, but you know, the interesting piece is that I don't think it's going to affect his draft position. I think his talent speaks for itself. I think, um, I think, you know, um, uh, we, what we know about the owners of these NFL teams that they have no problem supporting some of those positions in particular. Right. But I do think there's something to happen in the locker room, right? Like there, you know, there's a question is, is, will there, you know, will there be consequences in the locker room? Um, that's something for us to keep an eye out. And I think it's important because we just spent last episode talking about white allies and Kyle Corver about how his experience in the locker room led him to be to talk about white privilege. Right. So there's a sense that like in back to back weeks, and at least in this episode, we got Nick Bosa and Kyle Corver who are moving in different directions, whereas Kyle Corver, a 13 plus year vet in the NBA, has come to a different position. Um, well, it'd be interesting to see if Nick Bosa um, if his if his time in in the NFL locker room uh, changes his position uh, or not, right? And I think that'll be an interesting thing to kind of see and keep an eye out. But you know, in the last I want to say like ten or fifteen minutes, man, this is like this draft is looking like we're gonna have a chance to have at least two black quarterbacks drafted uh, in the first round uh, with Kyler Murray and Dwayne Haskins, right? And uh, Kyler Murray is an interesting cat, right? Because one of the things that we're going to see is that his dad was a star player uh, in the 1980s for Texas A&M at quarterback who did not get drafted. And it raises all these questions about black quarterbacks. You know, if there's been a position in which African-Americans have had a difficult time breaking into in terms of NFL and raises different kinds of questions, it's been this question of quarterback. Uh, and so I think one of the things we look at is there's a lot of history there, right? And 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 take us through some of this history of the black quarterback, at least in the NFL uh, and the draft before we get to Kyler Murray and Dwayne Haskins. Right. So we, I mean, we're talking about the black quarterback because that's like the conversation in history, right? Whenever you go through the black press or, or like Chet or Ebony, you're always going to find a, a, an article eventually on the black quarterback. No other position you do that, right? There's no like, oh, look who the black wide receivers at PWIs, right? Who's the first, who's the next one coming? It's always the black quarterback because the black quarterback is a conversation about uh, intelligence. It's a conversation about leadership and Black folks who are watching sports want to feel like they're, you know, they're part of that. They want to feel like, okay, if you're finally going to get someone like Eldred Dickey, who, who, by the way, is the first black quarterback drafted in the first round in 1968, um, if you're going to give him an opportunity, right, you're signaling that black people can lead. You're signaling that black people have this intelligence, right? Not just Dickey, but all of us. And so I think there is something invested in the quarterback. Um, and so that's why we're going to talk about the black quarterback. And I think we're going to do something really cool for listeners. We'll do some anniversaries, right? Um, so I mentioned that Dickey was the first black quarterback drafted in 68. 
Um, also in that draft was Marlon Briscoe out of uh, Omaha, and he was actually the first black quarterback to to start in the NFL in 1968. But then 50 years ago at the draft, uh, there were two black quarterbacks drafted. Uh, Henry Jackson, uh, a fifth rounder out of Alabama A&M, again, an HBCU guy, and James Shaq Harris. Now, for me, what's interesting besides the Andre, who has a pretty dope name, uh, <laughs> being drafted is that I don't see what the Boston Patriots were thinking when they went Andre Jackson in the fifth round over James Shaq Harris, right? Like, I know they went on potential and stuff like that, but like, mm-hmm. come on now. Like, how do you pass up on, on James Shaq Harris? I mean, I think it's, it, you know, I think part of it is that A&M uh, in the 60s, and, and this is one of the interesting things, right? Because this A&M team that Henry Jackson is on, I can speak on this a little bit because, you know, Florida A&M had, when Gaither was a coach from 1945 to 1969, they won the conference outright the uh siac right the the southern intercollegiate athletic conference right which is historically black conference of southern teams they won that conference 23 out of 25 years that he was the head coach outright oh man (laughs) and so one of the years that he didn't was a year in which they lost to alabama a&m uh and and so you know the way and this speaks to the kind of the power of Florida A&M right that that if you wanted to if you were a star if you could could lead your team to a victory over um over Florida A&M which uh Henry Jackson does uh in the conference and then a, a year later they will um they will play again uh in the Orange Blossom Classic I believe and and so this is a sense that this is the way and again like this is kind of the imprecise imperfect nature of scouting of black colleges in those days at the same time um in 69 like it, the grambling was still like most colleges in those days was still a primarily running uh running offense a rushing offense and so Jack Harris threw the ball very well, but he didn't throw it that often, right? Um, not as often as we would see with um, Doug Williams, which is a decade later, right? Like, uh, and so you see that, like, one of the things that uh, Eddie Robinson talks about is that you know he went to all these camps, these pro coaches camps, these college coaches camps, because he's like, I can't afford a quarterback coach, so I have to learn how to coach quarterbacks, and so he wow. spent a lot of time uh, with Shaq Harris, really kind of learning and teaching him the position on how to throw all the routes that they were running in in the professional game. And so he slowly added those to his offense. Uh, whereas Alabama A&M was in many ways a very progressive offense. They were throwing the ball all over the field uh, in those days ahead of um, – uh, you know, they were kind of ahead of the curve. Uh, and this is kind of the influence of some of the other programs in the deep South Southern and Prairie View in particular. So this is, I think that's how he gets drafted over top of them. Right. Like, um, but you know, like, but 69 is not the only year, right? Like this is, you know, that's, that's my wheelhouse in the sixties. And, yeah. and, 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 right. With black college stuff. But in 99, 1999, which is both of our wheelhouse, this is in our lifetime. Right. Yeah. We, we, we saw what three first rounders go uh, in the 99 draft. Right. And, and that was a, that was a crazy, I mean, and, and what is this number you got here in our list? Six total? Six total. So 99 was like, I think 99 was maybe the most significant one. So, so 99, if you don't know, that's, that's uh, McNabb at number two to the Eagles. That's Achilles Smith who busted out um, number three uh, to the Bengals. That's Culpepper, the great Mr. Bout it, bout it. Number 11. Um, 
to the Vikings. And then you have Sean King who goes, not that Sean King, by the way, you have quarterback Sean King who goes to the Buccaneers in the second round. You got uh, Aaron or Aaron Brooks, and then you have Michael Bush, right? So six black quarterbacks. And, but think about this. So you have three black quarterbacks to go in the first round, which are in the top 11 before that moment. Only four total had ever been picked in the first round. That's Eldridge Dickey in 68. That's Doug Williams. That's Andre Ware. That's Steve McNair who went. McNair at that point when he goes was number three, and that was the highest a black quarterback had been picked. Mm-hmm. And the thing about McNair, too, is that he's, if I'm right, he's the last HBCU quarterback picked um, in the first round. I think De- Tavares Jackson eventually gets picked up by the Vikings in the second round. Mm-hmm. Um, but so he's the last one at three and, and Aaron McNair was just, I mean, you thought it would change the game, right? That, that okay, you got this guy, they're going to, they're going to go more HBC quarterbacks than they don't, but 99 changes the game, right? After that, the six years after the 99 draft, NFC championships are represented by black quarterbacks from that uh, draft. So um, Sean King, Cole Pepper, then McNabb four times. And when McNabb's Eagles go to the Super Bowl, they beat Michael Vick, right? Um, and the Falcons. <laughs> and Vick, as we know, was the number one draft pick two years later. Um, and so what's interesting about that draft, too, is not only that you have this this large amount of quarterbacks, but you have this new discussion about the black quarterback, right? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you see a lot, right? When you add six to the league, um, Michael Bishop uh, makes it a year. But when you add six to the league, those numbers increase. I think they go to 17. And now all of a sudden you're having this new conversation like, oh my gosh, there's there's a lot of black quarterbacks. Oh my gosh, do we even have to call them black quarterbacks? We'll just call them quarterbacks. And, and, <laughs> and you know, they're going to get all these opportunities. And I think in many ways you'll, you'll start to see some of those opportunities play out, right? So you'll have four number one, like legit number one draft picks after that and Vic, Newton, um, Jamarcus, and, and, and Jameis. Um, you won't have more than three, so so two, um, but you but you get a sense that teams are willing, uh, and are okay, most teams are willing and okay with having a black quarterback to face of the franchise, and and I think that's important in this day and age because it's you know it signals something, right? Like we're we're comfortable with this black face, but also the city's comfortable with it because I think more than any sports. NFL teams are closely linked to their city, right? And and kind of give the city its vibe, like a like a Pittsburgh Steelers or a Dallas mm-hmm. Cowboys, right? And I think you signal something else about kind of where you're at. It doesn't mean that racism goes away or because those structural barriers, as we know, when we deal with sports, sports always remain there. But I think there's something important about that. Um, but then again, as we mentioned, the racism doesn't go away and, and, and the black quarterbacks are just policed differently. So ask, you know, Deshaun Watson about what he goes through, uh, being the black quarterback of, of the Houston, Texas, or ask McNabb in 2003, Rush Limbaugh went after him Mm -hmm. um, essentially on ESPN, right? Essentially saying like, we're just doing this because we just want a black quarterback. Right. Um, and so that, you know, the idea that the black quarterback, um, is not just the quarterback is, is, is part of, you know, this, this narrative of drafting the black quarterback. What I mean by that is like, look, when we talk black quarterback, me and you, we embrace them. Yeah. I think sometimes when the NFL talks black quarterback, they do it in a way where sometimes they try to talk themselves out of selecting this guy. Um, because all these implicit biases kind of come up, 
right? Um, and nowadays they don't say black quarterback, they say stuff like athletic or they bring up mm-hmm. stuff like leadership, right? Or they bring stuff up like, you know, does he study on the board hard enough or yeah. the wonderment, right? And we're seeing these conversations now, right, 20 years later in 2019, when it comes to Murray and Dwayne Haskins, right? I don't think any of these conversations about them are race neutral. No, absolutely. And I think let me let me add just one one clarification, because I don't want uh, you know, we've got a, a handful of fans, which we would like to grow. Uh, I don't want to exclude Vince Young from this equation. Right. Because oh, he, yeah. But he didn't. Did he go number one? He didn't. He, yeah. He went in the first round. He's the third pick. He went, third yeah. pick. Right. He yeah. should have been number one. Right. That right. was crazy. Yeah. The yeah. Texans the, didn't take him, right. Yeah. The Titans. Yeah. The Titans. did. Yeah. The Texans didn't take him. And then the Titans took him and then they didn't, you know, they didn't want to. I did them wrong after a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think you're right. Like Colin Murray and Dwayne Haskins both, I think, br- bring up two kind of interesting um, and divergent uh, kinds of questions, right? Colin Murray is, um, has all the athleticism that is usually typically associated with um, black quarterbacks, right? You know, he's, he's an electric runner. Uh, he's got an amazing arm. He makes all these plays outside the pocket, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What's interesting about Kyler Murray, at least in my opinion, is that one, he's 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 not very tall. Like he's not the prototypical, like the drop, like the way the NFL imagines these quarterbacks going back to John Unitas is these kind of very statuesque white uh, quarterbacks. Kyler Murray's not that, right? He's he's five eleven. Um, Five ten and some change, right? Um, but he hundred and nothing pounds. <laughs> he's two hundred and ten pounds, apparently, right? Um, but he's he's electric as everybody. Anyone who watched college football last year noticed that he's super electric. Um, he, you know, on his way to winning the Heisman. But what's interesting about Murray, at least, is that his father was probably as be- as really as good a quarterback as he is in his day at Texas A and M. Uh, he he was he threw for 20 touchdown passes in a day when most teams were still, especially in the Big Eight and uh, the Southwest Conference, they were still running the wishbone. Uh, they, they were throwing the football. He threw for 20 touchdowns, back-to-back Cotton Bowl victories. And he goes undrafted in the 1987 draft. And one of the things that we and you, we talked about this a little bit in prep, was trying to figure out, like, well, how did, how did that happen, right? Like, what was the story, right? Like, like in those days where there were 12 rounds, right? There was 12 dra- rounds of the draft. 300 guys got drafted. Why was he not drafted? And one of the things that we saw was, one, that he had a bad attitude, right? That was a certain kind of thing. Uh, that was big, right? So there's a sense of attitude that was uh, every newspaper that me and you both saw had it felt racially tinged, right? This attitude was tied to his race. Uh, the other piece that I saw that he said that he failed a physical, which was unclear about why, but it was like he failed all these physicals, but no one said what was the cause of the failure. Like, was it a bum shoulder or a bum knee or anything like that? So none of that happened. Uh, and so he goes undrafted. And what's even crazier to me is that even after going undrafted, no team was like, come to camp. Uh, and let's see, because I put up great. He put up great numbers. Like, why don't we see if this this guy who, um, if if he had been white, would easily have been drafted, but at least come right. deserves a, ch- a chance to come to camp. And so none of these things um, happened to him in this kind of almost tragic event. He gave up his last year of eligibility at Texas A and M to go pro early. Uh, so there's all these kinds of things which I think gets imparted into Kyler Murray. Which one of the things that I was always struck with was how well and polished he was when he uh, handled the press. Like as a, as a professor, you know this as well, right? We deal with these kids all the time, right? They're ni- 18 to 22. Um, 
they mean well, but they're not always uncomfortable when you put them in the front of the class and ask them questions, <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> uh, and so he's been super polished and it gets a sense that like some of the things that were, that had happened to his father gets transmitted to him and about the way he carries himself. And I think you mentioned something to others. Like, I don't really know. Uh, it, this may be an authentic Kyler Murray, but we don't know know if it is or not because in many ways he's been coached so that the things that happen to his dad don't happen to him um and then on the other end of the equation is Dwayne Haskins who is like the prototypical quarterback and one of the things that I I laugh at is that he uh you know they're like he gets knocked for not being athletic (laughs) right right and I think right (laughs) athletic and when like when you compare them to like black quarterbacks right but this Brian Relefage always had to go through this too it's like yeah dude I'm not athletic like compared to these other black quarterbacks but I'm still like running a 4.8 4.7 you know what I mean yeah right (laughs) right maybe not 4.8 he was like a 5 Uh, yeah yeah, yeah. I was giving him a little bit something you're giving him something right I was good but no but Haskins can spin it no no but Haskins can spin it right like I think that's the thing that that like people can see and 50 touchdowns is a lot of touchdowns it's a gang of touchdowns <laughs> speaking about a lot of touchdowns if we go back tank younger by the way looked it up 60 touchdowns at grambling by the way but yeah 50 touchdowns in the big 10 too right yeah um, exactly and he and he did it in such a way where he was just throwing darts and it's like you know like how he let's be clear like how he had a different complexion, that's a number one pick, right? That's there's no oh. doubt, right? Like like that's number one pick. Um but what's also interesting about him is that 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 article that came out the other day from a, like a New Jersey writer talking about his dad. And I don't like I know like here's the thing. When we talk about the black quarterback nowadays, we'll say black quarterback and stuff like that, but a lot of times people try to do it without talking about race. But I think anytime you talk about these guys and their parents, um especially like the black dad i don't know if like i said that's a race neutral conversation especially like the black dad who's troubling right because we've done this a lot of times with black dads in sports whether it's uh Mm -hmm. tiger's dad uh serena venus's dad um uh who else um I'm trying to think. Oh, LeVar. Ball. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Ball. Balls, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, the we ball. do this like somehow like that they're when they're trying to be overprotective or when they're trying to push their kids in a certain way. Right. And just make sure they're handled right. Um, they become a problem. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it that what that guy was doing when he was just kind of showing um you know, Dwayne's dad as a problem is kind of fitting into that narrative, right? Where we could all feel sorry for him. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That dad doesn't really want to give you this interview. Uh, what a bad dad. And then, and again, I just don't think, I mean, some people might disagree, but I don't, I don't think you can have these kind of conversations on a, on a black dad without like, you know, trying to be race neutral or anything about that. I mean, I think it's also too, right? Like that I get the sense that his dad understood the stakes, right? Like the stakes, right. that, you know, how easily um, things could be used against his son, right? And so is it was an interesting kind of thing where he's trying to 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 thread this needle, right? Like I read a uh, I read an article uh, today because uh, as a Maryland alum, I read about Mike Loxley, the new Maryland uh, football coach, who had recruited um, 
uh, Haskins to the University of Maryland before he uh, uh, decided to go to Ohio State. And he talked about how, you know, the dad, they were a great family and how he loved loved meeting with them. And every he said everything right. And I thought it was interesting because I felt his take, right, like one way to read Mike Loxley's comments is that he's saying the right thing as a, as a, as a new head football coach at Maryland who's going to have to recruit players like Dwayne Haskins to Maryland. But another take is – that as a black head football coach, he understood what his, his, you know, Dwayne Haskins' dad was trying to accomplish, right? Like what he was trying to do. And they had a different kind of relationship that was not adversarial in the way that uh, the white media uh, and Haskins' dad felt uh, at that particular moment, right? So this is not to say that Haskins' dad doesn't deserve any of these crit- criticisms because I don't know. And we we didn't interview him. That's not our thing. But I think that there's lots of ways in which um, – that his experience has to be filtered through this legacy of African-American players uh, in the NFL, right? That many of these players are seen as moody. They've, uh, especially as black quarterbacks, are not given a chance. They are seen as not being able to pick up the offense. We talked about, uh, you know, Marlon Briscoe, right, is – uh, is the first NFL starter for Denver. He wins all these games. They give him the nickname, the magician. And at the end of the season, they ship him off to Buffalo where he has to serve as a wide receiver for uh, Shaq Harris, right? Uh, Eldridge Dickey, who, who earned the name, the Lord's prayer at Tennessee state um, because he always answered when he was called, right? <laughs> um, uh, could throw the ball, you know, 50 yards with either hand and had these electric kind of plays. But somehow uh, Al Davis didn't think that he was learning the offense fast enough. So they try to move him to wide receiver. Right. And so he a first round draft pick. Uh, is replaced ironically by Ken Stabler, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> who who right. is like the, you know, the who is ironically the troubled uh, kind of quarterback at Alabama, right? That's why he fell to the second round, right? Because he's, you know, he's lefty. He's kind of a, a counterculture. He had long hair and all those things, you know, all that stuff that Ken Sabler did at Alabama. And so you see this thing. And so I think that like, even though Dwayne, I don't know if Dwayne Haskins' dad knows this particular history, but as as African Americans, we know that this is this is a pretty relative and pretty normative, no matter what profession we're talking about, right? And so I think that there's a sense that he is being very protective about trying to 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 control that narrative as much as possible without painting his son as some uh, inability to handle the New York media or handle the offense or handle to be you know incapable of playing quarterback at the NFL level. No, no, you're exactly right. And 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 as we end this, just just know that this these are the things that are sad about these black quarterbacks, right? Um I I know you mentioned Dickey and Briscoe. Um in 67 you have Hank Washington, the same thing. Like and in fact, so Hank Washington's an all American at um quarterback, right? And and he said that he could throw the ball 90 yards, right? And he's everybody knows he's the best player in the draft and they don't draft him and one thing that comes out scott's saying that he's cocky right he has this attitude problem the, the reason why they're saying that is because he thinks he's good right mm-hmm. and so the black quarterbacks been policed in these ways is so it's going to be interesting tomorrow or today uh we've, we've gone kind of long here uh <laughs> with the draft and, and like when murray gets drafted when haskins gets drafted and what's those conversations around them um but on that note i think it's time to get out of here man yeah that's it, man. We'll yeah. pick it up next week, it. man. Thank Ooh. you for listening. Yeah. All right, but peace. Peace. <laughs>